Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Willamette Week in those days, 78 to 81. If you knew the subject of the story, you pretty much knew its point of view. I wrote articles that I believed in, but they had a point of view, and the point of view, for the most part, was pretty unrelentingly conventional left. It's demoralizing when you're giving your all and working in a system where, starting from the top, there doesn't seem to be a focus on crisp and effective execution of the policies that you've decided. What we collectively need to do, regardless of the party, is making things work. All right, folks, today we have a very special treat for you. I had the pleasure to interview Phil Kiesling, who is a name well-known to most Oregon politicos. He was a two-term Secretary of State. He served in the Oregon State Legislature before that. And what you might not know about him is that he also worked on the Tom McCall for Governor campaign and was an aide to Oregon House Speaker Vera Katz before she became mayor of Portland. He was on McCall's third governor campaign. So Oregon history nerds will know that's the campaign he actually lost. So we have a fascinating conversation about Tom McCall, about Vera Katz, about Phil's relationship with those two, what he learned from them. Phil was also a journalist. He went on after his time as Secretary of State to be you know, a successful business person in the private sector and then ended up at Portland State University, where he's the director for the Center for Public Service at the Hatfield School of Government. And now he's chair of the National Vote at Home Institute. Oregon, as many of you know, is a pioneer in the vote by mail space. And Phil tells the story on this podcast of how that happened in this state and some of the strange bedfellows who were supportive and opposed to it at the time. I learned stuff that I had never heard before that I found truly fascinating. I think you'll find interesting, too. So it was an awesome conversation. I think you will really enjoy hearing from Phil. He's an incredibly thoughtful person who's still very engaged on all kinds of different public policy issues. We talk at the end about open primaries and his work on open primaries in the past and where things stand today. We talk about how the legislature has changed culturally since he served one term. He served one term before being appointed by Governor Barbara Roberts to the Secretary of State's office. And he talks about how there seems to be an emphasis today on public policy over public administration and how that imbalance can be challenging for government effectiveness. So with that, I will get us right into the interview with Phil Kiesling. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you back here next week. Thanks, everyone. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harangue.com. That's www.harrang.com. All right, Phil Kiesling, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Okay, so as I was like looking through your biography, of which you've done very many interesting and cool things, the first thing that I have to ask you about is, is it true that you worked for Tom McCall's gubernatorial election? Is that right? I did the one and only unsuccessful one in 19. Oh, you worked on the last one. (laughs) Yes, exactly. His, His attempted comeback. So what I recall, and please fill in the details here, but what I recall from Fired Eden's Gate is... Many of his longtime aides at the time were basically like, Tom, don't do this. Like, you don't need to run again. But he had this like confidence and sense of like, I've got this relationship with voters. What what do you recall from that campaign? Well, I'll tell you how I got involved in it is that in 1975, three years earlier, I had taken a semester off of college kind of at the last minute. I got an opportunity to be a page in the Oregon Senate. And quickly realized that that meant a lot of sitting around for most people and carry notes back and forth during the session back in those days. But a colleague had said, you know, in the afternoons are pretty slow. You might want to see if you can volunteer for one of the committees. So I pursued that and ended up working for Ted Halleck, 
And Ted okay. Halleck was an award-winning journalist, irascible, brilliant. Someone once said, if you looked at Ted, he resembled the ash of a burning cigarette right before the ashes fell to the carpet. He was thin and, and wiry and just full of, uh, you know, and vinegar. And <laughs> Ted was one, it was a Democrat and a very, quite a liberal one. He was uh, fighting nuclear power back then, trying to ban chlorofluorocarbons, big land use planning advocate. Ted broke ranks with the Democrats, Straub. Governor Bob Straub was in office running for re-election. Mm -hmm. Ted broke ranks and publicly said, Tom has to run. Tom, you should run and weighed in on it. And I got a call from, from Ted to say, you know, I think you ought to go to work for him. And, and the uh, reason was later. The reason why he thought Tom McCall should run was because Bob was insufficiently progressive on environmental issues is the implication. I don't know exactly all that was involved with Ted's thinking and the thinking of others, because there were a number of people on both sides of the aisle encouraging Tom to run. But it was, uh, you know, it was 1978. It was a pretty prosperous time for Oregon. It wasn't if there were economic storm clouds or anything. But I think it was a sense that some of the legacy of the McCall era had gotten kind of tied up and not lost momentum. And I think Tom had a real desire to do it. There was a terrific story written called Decision at Land's End. I'm trying to remember the author, the Oregon Magazine uh, publisher, that kind of you know looked at Tom's thinking back and forth. In retrospect, of course, it was not a good decision. Times had changed, particularly in the Republican primary. One of my indelible memories of the McCall campaign is McCall coming into the office one day and saying, you know, this Proposition 13 that's on the ballot in California, there's something here. We need to address it. And the general sense of the experts that were running his campaign is, nah, nah, it's not, you know, you stay away from that one. It's not going to be that. What so, was I mean, Proposition 13? 13 was the big property tax limit that oh, uh, California pre... passed in 1978. Our version of Measure 5 that, Got it. you know, harbinger of what was to come in Oregon a dozen years later. McCall understood that. And the Republican Party primary was a lot different than the last one he'd run in. You see, he hadn't had to navigate a primary, and even then it was pretty mild, since 1966. He won the nomination easily. He was Secretary of State in 1970. He had no opposition. He won a second term. By 1978, you've got the whole Reagan era that has come. And McCall's progressivism and particularly his pro-environmentalism. Now he was uh, he was comfortable with nuclear power and that caused a little bit of heartburn for some of the people who worked for him who were even more, you know, were anti-nuclear power. But his brand of republicanism was clearly on the wane. And of course, with Atiyah and Roger Martin in the race, Vic Atiyah stayed above the fray. Roger Martin really came after Tom in all sorts of ways. And Tom ended up, of course, losing pretty handily to Vic Atiyah. So you might be one of the few people in Oregon history who worked for both Tom McCall and Vera Katz because you later in your career wow. were an aide to the speaker, right? So yeah. she's also someone who's kind of a giant of Oregon political history. What was it like working for her? What did you learn from her? I just admired Vera greatly. And you're absolutely right. I had the, the opportunity with McCall. It was too short a time. It was just three months, basically, as the campaign was over by May. You know, McCall had an ability to wordsmith and to articulate ideas and concepts. Before I go to Vera, another really indelible memory, and Don Jarvie, who many credit to coming up with the odd-even license plate scheme to ration gas during Gasoline. the 1973 oil embargo. Don was, you know, sometimes you say, my gosh, his head is in the stars. Well, literally, he convinced Tom to give speeches talking about the potential of telecommunication someday, allowing farmers to sit on their tractors and give testimony in Salem to allow satellites to tell you when you had to turn on irrigation pipes so you could conserve water. Stuff that, you know, today is commonplace. But back in 1978, people thought, well, it's kind of crazy. And why are you talking about this? <laughs> Tom was really attracted to thinking about the future. Vera was one of the savviest most caring politicians, you know, I had a chance to be closely associated with. You know, here's a young woman who leaves the Nazis with her parents, crosses the Pyrenees at the age of seven or eight, comes to America, gets a public school education in Brooklyn, lands in Portland, Oregon, and is probably, you know, like many women of the era, look like she might be fated to, you know, be, a, you know, just a smart 
parent, housewife, and the like. But Vera got involved in politics, got involved in the Robert Kennedy campaign, got involved in her neighborhood, looking at these massive freeway destroy the neighborhood plans in Northwest Portland. In fact, you can still see remnants of these freeway ramps that were going to be built that you know got truncated and never did. And Vera organized, went door to door, tireless, even though she was fundamentally shy. She really didn't love the schmoozing game. She didn't gravitate to always having to be out. In fact, she was often in bed by nine o'clock when I worked for her for three years as a staff person. The routine would be I would drop off materials for her to look at maybe seven o'clock at night on her mail on her front porch. I'd get there at seven o'clock in the next morning and she'd gone through two or three hours worth of, of material because she was wow. up at four or five with a cup of coffee and uh, before daylight. Hard worker and just a real sense of public service. One of the remarkable moments in her career as a legislator is she got to be really adept at ways and means, the budget. She was slated to be the co-chair of the Ways and Means Committee after her yeoman's work in uh, I think it was the 1979 session or might have been, been 81. I'm a little confused. But she realized that in order to elect the Democratic speakers, Hardy Myers, that Jeff Gilmore, a conservative Democrat from Down Valley, Jefferson outside of Salem, just basically crossed his arms and said, I'm your 31st vote. And I'm not going to give you the vote until you let me be co-chair of Ways and Means. Oh, and wow. Vera, to her credit, finally said, okay, it's what it's going to take, I will step down, let me be co-chair. Jeff was fine with that. Jeff became one of her biggest allies when in 1985, she uh -huh. ran for speaker because Jeff said she made me such a much better co-chair. I learned so much from her and she was generous and open about helping me. So she formed an alliance with people on the very conservative part of the Democratic side, not because of her politics. I mean, she was advocating for gay rights and women's issues and the like, a very liberal side back then in the 70s, but because of how she respected the process, how she mm -hmm. understood how to get things done and how to count votes, how to strategize, how to understand what people really needed versus what they said they would. And I remember when I left in 88 and got a leave of absence to run for the legislature myself, when there was mm -hmm. an open seat that suddenly came up and got elected, I remember my first and only term as a state representative, there was a bill that came up that was going to pass. It didn't need my vote, but it was probably a bit of an uncomfortable vote in my district in Southeast Portland, Southwest, pretty liberal district. It, it was, and I can't even remember the issue. Hmm. So I had a sidle up to Vera who was standing there and said, I'm just kind of curious, you know, how, how you handled this. And she turned hmm. to me with the most serious look on her face and goes, Phil, <laughs> this is one of the most important lessons of politics. Over and over again, I have seen people decide, oh, I can, I can afford to vote no on that. It's not the right thing to do, but I'm going to vote no. And they keep doing it and they keep making that accommodation over and over and over again and they lose track of who they are and what they came here to do i think you owe your best judgment is it a good bill or not vote that way it'll keep you out of trouble and i saw colleagues who played that game and i saw them get tied up in all sorts of you know problems because they lost sight of that so she understood that. And that was a really important lesson for me is you figure out what the right policy is. Then you figure out the politics. You don't look at what you ought to vote on based on the politics. You need to understand them. Okay, if I do the right thing, this is going to be kind of brutal. But you do the right thing, and then you figure out how you're going to deal with it. And so, that was a real lesson from Vera. So maybe that's part of, I'm going to ask you about your time in the legislature next, but when a lot of people think of Vera Katz today, they think of her as mayor of Portland, where mm -hmm. she went after she was speaker. And there's this sort of narrative of like, she was the last great mayor, one of the last great mayors of Portland. And that's been a very hard job, particularly in the last decade or two. I mean, what's your perception of what made her special as mayor of Portland? Like, what was her skill set particularly suited to that job? Was it how she approached it? Were the times just so different that it was easier to be mayor? Like, how do you think about her mayorality? Well, I view it through the lens of what I saw when she was speaker. And she understood, I think, that 
you have to keep people informed and in the loop. You can disagree with people, but you should always try to do it respectfully. You should try to understand why people are coming from where they are. I mean, you think about the Oregon legislature, and back then there were a lot of Democrats from rural areas. And she had to keep peace with 31 of the slimmest of majorities. She had to try to get stuff through. And I think, in a sense, the mayorality was simpler in some ways because you're really only dealing with five. Yeah. And if you can get to two in a strong way, you often could get the third. Uh-huh. Okay. And three, of course, all that you needed. But I think she also understood that if you could get to five on issues, all the better. Don't try to roll people. Okay. And I want to tell another story about Vera because I Please. think people don't pay enough. You know, her legacy is too much being an excellent mayor and people not recognizing her role as speaker. Uh-huh. In 1989, a bill that she had worked on for over a decade to put Uh, anti-discrimination legislation in Oregon law, anti-discrimination based on sexual orientation. Use that term for the first time and prohibit discrimination in certain quarters, employment and housing, I believe it was. And at the very end of the 1989 session, she called us all in the caucus room and she said, I'm going to violate a rule that I have gone by all my career, which is knowing that I have 31 votes before we bring a bill to the floor. Wow. But this is something that is at my core. This is something that I just truly believe in. And you are absolutely free to vote your conscience. I do not expect it at all to this to be any kind of, you know, up or down. You're not going to get punished or anything. But as speaker, I'm going to exercise this prerogative. And she brought it to the floor and the Republicans pounced on it, you know, about how terrible it was. Remember, this was the day of the era of the Oregon Citizens Alliance and the like. And this was a really hot button issue. And it was remarkable to see what happened because a conservative legislator from the South Coast, uh, Jim Whitty, who we all assume would vote no on it. Jim, after about an hour of this debate, stands up and goes, you know, I grew up in a community as a Catholic and I got called all sorts of names. I know what it feels like to be bullied and, and be another. And, you know, this is probably really going to hurt me in my district, but I'm going to vote yes. Like, whoa, wow, that was not enough. But when the vote came down 31 to 29 in favor, holy cow. some of us turned around and right behind my desk actually was a five foot four retired army colonel Republican from Pendleton. His name was Chuck Norris, believe it or not. <laughs> okay. Chuck Norris had a green light on his desk. Vera had, of course, slammed the gavel and said the bill has passed. They're trying to get Chuck to serve notice of possible reconsideration, okay, or change his vote even. And the Republican leader tried to harangue him. We went over to try to just hang out and see what happens. Finally, they left. And we said to Chuck, Chuck, that must have been really hard. And he goes, well, I turned my hearing aids off. (laughs) But that bill passed because, you know, Vera... And, and she did it in a way that was respectful to the other opinions in the caucus. But no, so I think she took into her mayor wow. office that sense of really wanting to understand where people were coming from, what was important to them, what their communities was like. She was very curious about that. And I traveled some with her in other parts of the state, and she had a genuine curiosity. So it was no surprise that her son became a reporter. <laughs> so speaking of being a reporter, you spend your early career in journalism after kind of dipping your toe in politics a little bit, and then you make a transition. Do you go directly from, you go from reporter to staffer to legislator? Was that the trajectory? Yes. Okay. Yes, because after my stint with Tom McCall, and I'd actually turned down a job that maybe would have paid a thousand a month to be an editorial writer at the East Oregonian in Pendleton. I actually was really intrigued with that. But then when I get this offer to work for Tom McCall, I, mean, oh, I grew up, you know, really admiring McCall. So I went to work for $300 a month, <laughs> continued to live with my parents. <laughs> but that ended. And so May of 1978, I'm kind of, you know, what do I do next? I wasn't going to go to law school like a lot of people that I knew. And 
and I, I, I love doing, you know, I did some speech writing for Tom, although writing a speech for Tom meant you'd give him a text and he'd go, well, it looks like a pretty good speech and out the window, you know, the out, second yeah. paragraph, you know, and, and but uh, I ended up at Willamette Week working for three cents a word and $250 a month, I think. They had a special section they committed to that they didn't have somebody to run or the person had left. So they were in a jam, as it turns out. And I was, I was a sucker for getting a lot of writing under my belt. So I ended up doing that for three years and then discovered this wonderful magazine called The Washington Monthly. And the difference I've told people is Willamette Week in those days, 78 to 81, if you knew the subject of the story, you pretty much knew its point of view. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were good guys and bad guys. Corporations, the military, they were the bad guys. The labor unions and environmentalists, they were always the good guys. And, you know, you know, I wrote articles that I believed in, but they had a point of view. And the point of view, for the most part, was pretty unrelentingly, I would just say, conventional left. What I appreciated when I discovered the Washington Monthly was writers who were coming from the same general perspective, we were not Reaganized, but really took pleasure and thought it was really important to challenge conventional wisdom wherever it was found, including on your own side. Mm-hmm. So I go back and let's see, first three articles. The first one was, if you want to meet the biggest defenders of socialized medicine in America, don't talk to Ted Kennedy, go talk to the veterans of foreign wars in the American Legion who do their best to defend a government run and owned healthcare system known as the VA. Mm-hmm. And I made the case that the, the Canadian system is just a half measure. Let's go all the way and let the government own all the medical <laughs> facilities and pay the doctor's salary. Then within two months of that, I'd written an article that lambasted teachers unions and schools of education for being responsible in part for bad public schools in so many of our big cities and, and wow. said that if liberals think it's just a matter of more money, they're kidding themselves. And look at all these liberals in D.C. who send their own kids to private school. I wrote in favor of means testing social security benefits. OK, so when, that's when, not going to win you a lot of votes. When you ran for office, both as a state rep and then a secretary of state, did any of these writings come back to bite you at all? Did anyone say, oh, this is yeah. the guy who really? Yeah. Oh, man, are you are you kidding me? And did you um, stand by them? Did you say, I said what I said and I meant it? Or did you say, listen, times have changed. I've thought through these things. I've evolved. I'll tell you a couple of stories. Uh, when, I, <laughs> when I ran for the legislature in the spring of 1988, Democrats hated the sales tax, at least the Democrats at the precinct committee level. And lo and behold, the day that a seller would be reporter happened to be, you know, traveling with me. They, you know, a voter asked me what I thought of the sales tax. And I said, well, I actually think it's a good idea. Vera had supported it. I thought we needed to, you know, do something major with it. And boy, did I get a talking to on the doorstep, which the reporter you know, said, oh, my gosh, there goes my, there goes my, uh, my chance. I had a friend who came out from the uh, Back east, I befriended Robert Kennedy's daughter, Kathleen Townsend, who later was Lieutenant Governor of Maryland when I was at the Washington Monthly. And I had taken time off to help her on her campaign. So she came out to help me. And Jonathan Nichols, yeah, Nichols uh, was interviewed her. And and Kathleen said, Yeah, I think it may be time that we legalize some drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, why is Kathleen in town? She's helping Phil. So, and and then when I was Secretary of State, the article that I had written about education. Now, when I had gone to work for Vera, one of the things that she was really passionate about was education reform. Mm-hmm. And she was in that camp that was not common among Democrats, which is we need to take a serious look at some of these issues that are being raised in these national reports like the nation at risk. The nation at risk in 1983 had said that if a foreign country imposed our public school system on America, we considered an act of war. That public school system has so many problems. That's a pretty powerful a open line statement. report. And she got involved in a national organization looking at increasing the professionalization of teachers, which meant pay them a lot more money, give them mentors, but also create a career lab so people would be able to make more money by helping other teachers. This was very much at odds with the conventional thinking at the time among groups like the Oregon Education Association. Well, my job became do a, a special task force over the interim when I was on the staff and come up with some recommendations that can pass. Mm -hmm. And I had done that. And Mm -hmm. we'd had 
teacher union officials and school board people and others at the table. And we did some really good things like mentor teacher programs. But when I ran in 1992 for the Democratic nomination, after Barbara Roberts appointed me, because of that work, I was known to a lot of people in the teaching world. And Barbara was known. She appointed me. Mm -hmm. And it was looking like I was going to win the endorsement. And it made my opponent's camp very nervous to the point that when I walked out on stage to do my speech to get the endorsement, 300 delegates had been passed out photocopies of my 1982 Washington Monthly article. An article Which basically said teachers unions are a problem. Teachers unions are a problem because they protect bad teachers too much and are not willing to look at professionalizing the teaching profession by asking people to, to get more pay in exchange for more, like being a mentor teacher, doing other kinds of work. And I took aim at teacher colleges for what I was pretty frank. A lot of classes were kind of so below, you know, what bright college students want to take that you end up attracting. Well, this is important because the way you say it, so many people who go into teaching do so who are wonderful and great and are dedicated and make way too little money. Okay. Right. But schools of education are a bottleneck, and they were at the time where you had to go through that gate. And we were talking to teachers who said, oh, my gosh, it almost drove me out of the profession, how mind-numbing these classes were that were required to be taken. Okay. So I talked to a lot of teachers who I respected who said, we need to really address that as well. Well, it got me on the Phil Donahue show, which if you people remember from that era back in the 80s was, you know, an hour long talk show. They bust in 100 teachers from the Chicago Federation of Teachers. And the Federation was quite a bit more strident about certain things than the National Education Association affiliates were. And they had the head of the National Education Association on one hand and a dean of a school of education on the other. And they say, OK, have at them. <laughs> you know, and this is a national TV show. People make tapes. I mean, the lobbyists knew knew of my checkered past when I was working for Vera. And uh, so it was not a surprise to the leaders of the OEA that I had uttered some of these heresies. So what happened was, at the convention when this the article gets passed out and you're about to give your big speech? Well, I threw out the speech I'd written and <laughs> I explained why I stood by Everything except for one big thing, which was merit pay. I said, I don't think merit pay can work. I'd become a fan of career ladders. And the difference there is you don't try to decide that Ben is a better teacher than Phil. And even though they do the same job, we'll pay Ben $10,000 more. No, you have peers say that Ben is a better teacher. We ought to make him a master teacher and ask more of him to coach and work on curriculum, etc. But in terms of what the problem was, in terms of the need to reform teacher education, in terms of the need to be more accountable as a profession, I stood by it. And I lost the endorsement. Hmm. Who won I it? I lost by 54 to 46%. Mary Wendy Roberts was the oh, okay. And I'll always remember that as I walked from the podium, mostly to tepid applause, if not total silence, that I can't remember. <laughs> I had a couple of teachers as I walked out of the room say to me, I read your article. You know, you actually made some good points. And again, I got 46%. And, but, you know, I was able to hold my head high and I ended up you know, winning that primary. I was not expected to win. I was expected to, to lose it. The polls all showed that I was going to be a one, one trick pony for, you know, two years, if even that, and, and lose the nomination to someone who had a lot more name recognition and familiarity. Now, some people said, oh, Phil, you'll do okay because Mary Wendy Roberts is the stepdaughter of Governor Roberts, and Governor Roberts is very unpopular. In fact, they were trying to recall her during my first two years wow. and they almost got enough signatures and I was the one who had to you know see if determine whether there were enough signatures and the conventional wisdom was that she she's going to beat you because in all the you know all across rural Oregon timber country that Barbara Roberts was not popular in she'll lose there you'll at least or no you'll you'll lose she's been labor commissioner and right. uh and as it as it turns out she won most of those counties, okay, running against the appointee of Barbara Roberts. I think they said, well, Mary Wendy Roberts, that's a different person. And it was only because I had made an effort in the Valley provinces um, uh, to get my name out. So that was a lesson about 
people are not paying very detailed attention to elections. Uh, they know a few things, but they they don't treat it like many of us do when we're in politics, that they really know all the twists and the nuances. So before we get to your time as Secretary of State, I want to ask, we had a conversation a couple of years ago, and you said something that I have continued to think about um, since, which was about basically the culture of the legislature and the culture of individual legislators on their priority issues. And this is what I recall you saying, and I've attributed it to you. So if you didn't say it, correct the record now. <laughs> uh, but you basically said something like, the legislature's changed a ton since I served. And it used to be that a legislator would have like a priority issue or priority area or priority program, and they would draft the legislation. They'd watchdog it through the session. They'd get it passed. They'd fight for funding from ways and means. Then after the bill passed, they'd watchdog its implementation with the agencies. They'd be in touch with the agency head. Then the next session, they'd be checking in on how implementation is going. They'd be fighting for additional funding. And that there was this more of a sense of like a legislator's longer term, let's call it a longitudinal commitment mm -hmm. to a policy area. And that now it seems like there's much less of that. It's much more of like the legislature seems to pass a bill and then see, and then the perception is that maybe there's less sort of long-term. Yeah, I I know that was my sense of the world that I had a chance to inhabit, look, observing as a staff person, then being part of it in the 1989 session. And I'm not probably as good to speak to what the culture is now. I just think politics has gotten a lot more complicated and a lot more fraught. And the point that is at the core of that is what I'd argue is what we often are missing in today's conversations, which is the importance of public administration as opposed mm -hmm. to public policy. When I was in the legislature, and I love policymaking, that's what you do. You pass laws. And we pass laws, for example, in all these sessions about education reform, the biggest one of which was 91 when I had just left, but Vera was no longer speaker. But she was in the Democratic minority now, but worked with Larry Campbell, the, the speaker, to get that vision passed. And I still think that vision of longer school year, more money, universal preschool, career ladders, professional development funds that teachers control. I think it was, you know, 40, 30 years ahead of its time, and we still need to, to do something like that. But I think that more and more people think that policy is the cure as opposed to the effective public administration of the laws we've already passed. Mm -hmm. I see what's going on in the city of Portland and how long it takes to build things, for example. I mean, if we really tell ourselves we have a housing crisis, and we do, why does it seem to take so long, have so much process, have so many different individual agencies involved in various kinds of permits and the like? I look at the at you know various state programs, and again, I think public administration and the crisp and proper and performance evaluation of those programs is really important. Why I was such a fan of audits when I was Secretary of State because you can pass something and walk away from it, but at the end of the day, it's how well does it work? And this is particularly important right now because you know there's a lot of heated talk and speculation about, you know, when the, is there a danger of fascism and authoritarianism coming to America? And I, uh, I worry about that at times. I, I you know, it, it's not something I'm, uh, I, I think I'm complacent about, but I don't think at the end of the day, if it were to happen, I don't think it comes in the guise of some, you know, over the top, strong man who, you know, takes a wrecking ball to all our institutions. Uh, we've seen those attempts and we've institutions have, have survived. I think it comes in the form of how, when I think about how Mussolini came to power in Italy a hundred years ago on the slogan, making the trains run on time. Um, whether that was a slogan or not, I don't know. But the point is, if government can't work and deliver effectively, and more and more money it takes to deliver less and less effectively, that's when people decide that it, that politics is uh, is in need of a very radical rethinking, and that's where things can get scary. So I think Democrats, my party, and Republicans seem to have truly gone into a ditch. It saddens me because I, you know, work with a lot of great Republicans and uh, or thoughtful Republicans and people like Dennis Richardson, who is Secretary of State, is a Republican, did some things to make Oregon's vote by mail system even better. But I worry that the Democratic side 
is paying way too little attention to the effective administration of the laws that, that have already been passed as they also work to pass, pass other ones. And I'm not saying new laws aren't needed, but you've got to keep your eye on that ball. There's a, a new book out. I actually have not read it yet, but I'm planning to. It's called Recoding America. Have you heard about this? I have. One of the, there's the, I listened to the Ezra Klein podcast with the author, and this is one of Ezra's quotes. He said, he go, at the end of the podcast, he's like just summarizing. He's like, there's politics, there's policy, and there's delivery. And right mm -hmm. now, delivery is so subordinate to the people who run politics and policy that in addition to the delivery being done poorly, the people doing delivery don't think they have any power. And he's drawing from, there's this story in the book about how, apparently how uh, building a concrete boat. He's like, if, you, if the policymakers tell the implementers to build a, a concrete boat, they'll build the concrete boat. Their job is to follow the process and do what they're told. It's not to say, wait a minute, this thing isn't even going to float when we finish it. And I've been thinking about that and what the implications are for policymakers. And it's a complicated yeah, it's story. Very astute. Yeah. I think it's a very astute observation. And I basically very much agree with that. I think that that gets the heart of a, what a lot of what we collectively need to do, regardless of, of party, is making th making things work. And of course, the you know, there's an irony just within my own city. I mean, I don't know. If, I think it's still on the doors of a lot of the trucks that drive around Portland, the city that works. Yeah. And yeah. I think you know, to a lot of people's minds, you know, oxymoron now. And I know there's a lot of really hardworking people in the city, and I've been impressed with the people that I that I've gotten to know just as a citizen for the most part. But it's demoralizing when you are giving your all and working in a system where, you know, starting from the top, there doesn't seem to be a focus on the crisp and effective execution of the policies that you've decided. And we can disagree about the policy. Right. But I think people have an obligation to make them work well. And so when I shifted from a legislative role to an executive role, it was really like walking into a whole different room. Yeah. You, know, you got to change your mindset around. Okay. That may be a stupid law. Your obligation is to implement it as fairly and as well and effectively as possible. And you can go to the legislature and say, well, I think this law ought to be changed. But you don't try to sabotage it by you right. know, gumming up the works. I mean, that's well, what you have to do. Ezra Klein, he uses this phrase. He says, we need to deregulate the government. And what he's referring to is like, sometimes the reason implementation goes poorly is actually still the fault of the policymakers because there's this accumulation of rules and requirements and steps and processes and checks. And, and maybe each one of those steps makes a lot of sense in isolation. But when you stack them all on top of each other, you have unworkable timelines or you have very costly implementation yep. or you have things where like the program gets funded through the legislature and then a year and a half later, they're still like trying to get the rules set. And I think it's obviously incredibly complicated. It varies, you know, agency by agency, and it, it varies like depending on the size of the allocation and all sorts of things. But it does seem like I bet that's a key difference between when you were serving the legislature is like we've added several additional layers of requirements for government to fulfill its functions, which has made it less nimble and less flexible, I guess. That's right. You, you, policy does affect your ability to do public administration well. And public administration done well sometimes means you don't need some of the policy issues, you know, that are constraints. There's a lot of what if this happens, oh, we better anticipate that and do something about it. But the price you pay is far greater than the risks that you think you've prevented. That's right. So hopefully you have the ability to stay a little bit later than uh, 3.45 because I want to ask you about a couple additional things. So the first question is... How does a freshman legislator get appointed Secretary of State? How did that, how did either you're very lucky or very skilled or both, Phil? What's the, what's the answer? Bannon was, you know, truly the biggest gift of my professional career. And I think in part it happened, you know, because of some things out of my control and also because I never sought the job. Mm -hmm. You know, 1989, I was in the legislature. I enjoyed it immensely. I was on track possibly to get a committee chair in the next term. I had an easy reelection in 1990. And I needed to kind of make a living. I'd just gotten married. I did a big book, book proposal in the timber industry, didn't get funded, taught a class at University of Oregon. But I had some time on my hands and Barbara Roberts was running for governor and I knew some of the people on her staff. I didn't know Barbara that well. I'd done known, known Frank some. And I just started volunteering and I helped write probably a speech that epitomizes 
why Barbara Roberts was such a remarkable leader. Hmm. I helped write a speech for her with some of her staff people, because I've been very involved in the Revenue Committee and Education Committee, about why we needed a 5% sales tax on goods and services hmm. in order to really bring property taxes down to the vanishing point or close to and reduce income taxes. And it was delivered by the candidate for governor, I think, 10 days before the actual election took place. Oh, my gosh. Oh my now, gosh. think about this. I mean, she comes from a party that platform has been adamantly against the sales tax. It's a huge risk. Voters have rejected it already. You know, never gotten more than 25% of the vote. And Barbara looks at this and says, Measure 5 is coming our way. It's the responsible thing to do to offer an alternative and say to voters, please don't vote for Measure 5. If you like me, I'm going to work for getting this to happen. Hmm. And her willingness to be honest, she answered the question about shutting down the Trojan nuclear power plant that was widely seen as a gaffe. But quite honestly, I think Oregonian said, well, I may not agree, but I like that style. I like her willingness to do that. Mm -hmm. And so, as again, I worked on that. Then when she did get elected to the shock and surprise of many, and remember there was a third party in the race, third candidate right. in the race. That's right. I had time to volunteer to help on a transition. And I got asked, and my wife actually got asked to Pam Wiley to work on the natural resources part of the transition team. So hmm. here we were and toiling away, putting together briefing books, interviewing lots of people. And, and that, was, that was great fun. And I'm ready to go to my next term in the legislature. And there were other names bandied about. In fact, I think out of the gates, he said, I think it was announced she'd appoint a downstate le a veteran legislator was the, what she was looking for. Downstate veteran legislator. You check none and of those boxes. <laughs> none of those boxes at all. And I tell people, I, I came back from my one and only junket that I took as a legislator. I say that word advisedly, but in <laughs> middle of December, Ron Cease, who was the chair of the House Environment Committee, says, keep leach gold mining is going to be an issue in the 91 session. Okay. We need to actually go take a look at what heap leach mining is about. Okay. When? <laughs> middle of December. Where? Oh, outside of Winnemucca, Nevada. Okay. <laughs> So we flew to Winnemucca, Nevada, and boarded a bus for like a couple hours and we're in the middle of nowhere to see this. And I get back from that and a message on my phone is saying that, well, it's gotten a lot more interesting. And, and are you willing to have your name put on the list? I said, oh. Who sure. asked you? At one of the staff people. Okay. Uh, I think it was so Barbara hasn't even... contacted you yet. No, I haven't heard from Barbara. And, but I said yes. And then I, about a week goes by and, and Patricia McKaig, who was her chief of staff, says, Phil, this has gotten more serious than you might realize. <laughs> we need to have a talk about whether if, if the governor were to ask you, are you going to say yes? Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's a good question. I'm going to talk to, to Pam about that. Our, we had our first child was on the way. And it had, it, it had big implications for her because she was the deputy director of the Division of State Lands at the time, which is the land boards. And I would be a member of the land board. So that oh, would that's, yeah, require, that's it wouldn't require her to give up her position, but that would have been, we both knew it would be the right thing to do. And she just said, you know, I'm not, not going to do that. And, but she was very supportive. And the day I was going to have my interview, the other candidates were in the mix. It snowed three inches. I left with an hour and a half to get to Salem. And I was still an hour and a half late because the roads were terrible. I had no cell phone in that day. And I literally went into the Capitol and Barbara's walking out the door. She said, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm late for our appointment. She said, oh, come on, come on. In. So my, my the most important job interview in my life, you know, I was an hour and a half late for. But I took the time to learn about the office. I didn't, I had not known nothing about it. I, and she and, was coming from the office of Secretary of State. So she knew yeah. the office very well. And she loved it. I mean, 
she spent six years there and democracy and democracy promotion and the other functions of the office had audits and, and corporations division. I mean, she she took them very seriously and, and enjoyed it and was a big advocate for things to expand, you know, voting in the franchise. Both of us, though, at the time were not, you know, big fans of voting by mail, as it turns out. I mean, you know, we were skeptical of it because it was being pushed by the head of the Republican Party, Randy Miller at the time. And so well, is that a good idea or not? But um, yeah, it was it was a it was a, a gift and a, a remarkable thing. I think what was the other thing that was important to her is keeping the office, um, mm -hmm. in, you know, in, in Democratic hands. I mean, Barbara is uh, very much you know a Democrat in her soul, and you know, you look at how the situation she grew up with and in the community and in her life and career trajectory, you know. I've always told people I I got a little less of that. I mean, I worked for Tom McCall, you know, and I grew up in a Nelson Rockefeller, you know, Republican kind of family rather than a staunch Democratic family. But, you know, I won a tough campaign in 88 because I was going to lose against uh, Judy Wires, who was the main candidate, who was the wife of the state senator in that district who had, hmm. had, had decided not to run again. So I think she had a sense I'd be a, a strong campaigner and you'd have to ask her and whether she she thinks it was the best call she could have made or not matters <laughs> not. So uh, even you know I I'm just a huge fan and she's going to be 87 in December and and Ben you ought to call her up and talk to her. In fact, I, I'm, one of my big projects at the moment is an endowed scholarship we've created at Portland State in her name. That's awesome. Which, uh, we uh, I'll send you an invitation. I would love it. I've said before that one of the coolest moments of my campaign for the legislature was when. And this is like sort of a rite of passage, I think, for Democrats in my generation, maybe a generation before me, was you go to the governor's house, Governor Robert's house, and you sit on her couch and you get to yeah. know her and she asks you some questions. And then you ask her for her endorsement and she either says yes, no, or follow up with me later. And when she did endorse me, I printed out a picture. My dad actually has the picture of me and Governor Roberts sitting on her couch in his house, which was a really cool moment. She's an incredible woman. She is. She's a treasure, a remarkable woman, and as dedicated a public servant as I've ever got to know. And, you know, I think back on a, a life in politics. I'm 68 now. There's no races in my future, which is a certain kind of liberation. I've had a chance to work for Ted Halleck, who was one of the brightest people and, and prescient people I've got to know when I was all of 21. Tom McCall, briefly. Vera Katz, Barbara Roberts, been truly, truly blessed in just the opportunities I've had to work with some of the best that Oregon has, has had to offer. I couldn't agree more. And I know you're friends with Governor Kitzhaber as well. And the intelligence of that group of people and the legacy that they've had on the state is pretty remarkable. And you're in that category too. And that's actually- Well, next, <laughs> well no, because the next thing I want to ask you about is vote by mail, which I think if you ask people what is like the core parts of Oregon's identity, vote by mail is on the top top five, top 10. Tell me the story of how this happened. I didn't know that this was originally a Republican idea, but what was your role in this? You're kind of, I mean, you're now the chair of the National Vote at Home Institute, which I love that name, but what was your role in vote by mail in Oregon and how did that happen? Well, if anyone calls me the father of vote by mail, I I've immediately correct them because <laughs> it's dead wrong. Okay. Uh, the father of vote by mail was a conservative Democrat named Del Riley, who was the clerk of Lynn County, Oregon, who about 1981 asked the question, gee, if we're going to the time, trouble and money to print up sample ballots and to mail out, why don't we mail the real thing to voters? At which oh, point sure. everyone around him said, that's crazy. And <laughs> Dell goes, you need to prove that to me. Give me a better answer. And he kept at it and convinced Norma Paulus, the Republican Secretary of State, to get the legislature to give permission to counties to run this kind of system. So I joked that Dell was the true father. Norma was the mother. I got to be the midwife for the <laughs> final child. Okay. And, and the way to explain that is that... In the 80s, the local option, letting local governments do it for every election, except for primaries and generals. Mm. And in 89, I voted against a bill that would have expanded that permission to counties to primary election. Okay. And I've told people, I mean, you know, I never thought of it. Crunch of autumn leaves, crisp blue skies, meeting my neighbors at the polls. I 
a sucker for that stuff, Norman <laughs> Rockwell, all that. But what okay. I realized, I took office still with that one vote. And what I realized is I was confusing a ritual of democracy, which is very familiar and beloved by some, obviously. But I was confusing a ritual of it with its essence, which is participation. Yep, and when I right. saw, when we ran elections, we had an obscure ballot measure statewide about, you know, local improvement districts, limit measure five, just utterly incomprehensible. But counties that did it this way were getting 25, 30, 40 percent turnout in the few counties that didn't were in the single digit. Hmm. I mean, you know, come on, this gets you more participation. So I became a convert, even though up to that point, you know, Senator Randy Miller and other Republicans were pushing it. And it was quite honestly, a lot of people liked it or hated it because when more people voted in some of these school levy elections, it increased the odds that they get defeated. Okay, because we used to have election dates and, you know, obscure Tuesdays in June and September, and you'd get your friends to go out and, and, you know, vote to keep the schools open. Terrible way to run the schools, but, you know, lacking, you know, comprehensive school reform is how it happened. So I had a journey of my own to make, but by 1993, I was a full on advocate. Let's just do it. And we got the bill passed in 1995 over the objections of some Republicans and some Democrats, but it passed in a Republican-controlled legislature, both parties, and we were shocked. It happened the last day at 2 a.m., and then Governor Kitzhauer vetoed it. Oh, I didn't know and, this either. Oh, you don't know the story? No. Well, he was being lobbied heavily by the Democratic National Committee. To veto it. To veto it. In fact, the head of the Democratic National Committee, a guy named Don Fowler, was out in Oregon after it happened and said that was such a good thing that was done because vote by mail is like giving people vitamins without anything nutritious to eat. I have a standing <laughs> $100 reward for anyone who can explain what the heck that means. <laughs> I don't quite know what that means either. <laughs> but, and I think, John, quite honestly, the, the same appeal that with me, you know, the, his mom had been active in legal women voters. I think she didn't much like it either, the tradition of it. I'm not sure how, you know, that John thought about it very much. He's later said, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. But he vetoed it. And then three months later, Packwood resigns. And because it's a special election under Oregon law, it's not a regular primary or regular general. The statutes at the time gave me the ability to make the call. And you didn't need statutory authority to do vote by mail? I already had it. No, for the special election to fill the vacancy. Oh, got it. Because the statute just said it's allowed, except in regular primaries and generals. This was not a regular primary. Oh, I see, I see, I see. I actually called the head of the DNC to let him know that. And he said, you can't do that. I said, well, you probably ought to have your lawyers read the law. But And people say, was that a hard decision? And I go, you know, I would have probably been run out of town on a rail if by the clerks if we'd done it any other way. Okay, it's December. Okay, and then January for the second round. In fact, if we had done this in person, the day we would have held the primary in December of 1995, and that was a tough primary, the Republicans and Democrats, very competitive on both sides. If we had held the election on the date that we had looked at, mm -hmm. it was the same day that 100 mile an hour winds not only hit the coast, but came into the Willamette Valley. And the police were ordering everyone in the Capitol to leave early and go home. And all the news was saying, stay in your home unless it's absolutely critical. I mean, people could have died. People could have died by going out and yeah. trying to vote. And so we did the vote by mail elections first in the country. It was a bit of a risk. I mean, I think my staff was telling me, well, you know, if this screws up, you're probably toast in the next election <laughs> campaign because there's one coming up, you know, in, in, in November really 96. I said, well, it's the right thing to do. Let's just try to make it work. And but what happened after this Republican bill got vetoed by a Democrat, although some Republicans at the time were beginning to have second thoughts. Well, a Democrat won, Ron Wyden. He was not expected to win by many. Gordon Smith looked like he had a lock on it. Gordon got elected later, of course. But all that Republican support evaporated as quickly as a piece of, as an ice cube on a hot stove. It just, you know. Because <laughs> they're like, oh, this it. helps the bad guys. That was the thinking. And so we got close, but didn't get there. So we had to take it to an initiative. And the initiative in 1998 passed. And, you know, Oregonians voted for two to one. It passed in all 36 counties. It was supported by every county clerk in Oregon as a way to boost turnout, make it easier for voters. And at the end of the day, when people ask, well, what's the best argument for it? 
it's not the money that's saved or the convenience or maybe even the turnout. Over and over again, people have told me, I feel I cast a more informed vote. Mm-hmm. I feel I had the time with my ballot to sit there and go through the voters pamphlet, go to the internet now, talk to friends and family, the new things. I feel better about being a participant in, in democracy. I don't feel rushed. And that's an insight that I think is really important in these really fraught times is you give people a chance to be as thoughtful as possible rather than trying to you know, just railroad them to vote a certain way because someone has an R or a D after them. That's right. I couldn't agree more. Phil, my last question for you is about maybe a less successful experiment in democracy in Oregon. You on two different campaigns, at least two different, were supportive of open primaries. And you worked with Norma Paulus, I know, in 2006. And then you came back in 2008. And my recollection is both of those lost pretty poorly. But the first one we didn't get enough signatures for in 2006. Oh, it didn't qualify. It was the 2008 okay. that went to the ballot. And then in 2014, one I also supported, but was not involved in as much, they had also failed. So A, I guess, can you explain why you believe open primaries would be a step forward for democracy? And B, what's your theory on why it just doesn't seem to get much traction in Oregon? I know they're going to try some other version this cycle which maybe things will be different, but I'm just kind of curious how you reflect on this open primaries dynamic. Yeah, well, when I was Secretary of State, I didn't, you know, we I was a big advocate for letting non-affiliated voters vote in the party primaries. It struck me as strange we're paying for them, and yet we mm-hmm. have a closed primary system. You have to switch party registration 20 days out. Otherwise, you're out of luck, and you can still vote for judges. But that just seemed unfair. But I'd always thought of it in terms of, well, let's just try to figure out a way to open it up so people can choose which primary to vote in. And it was only after I left office, and it was a young person who put a proposal together for a group that I was involved in trying to think of, you know, new ways of looking at issues, who said, well, why not just open it up completely? Why not just let everybody run and everybody vote and the top two go to the finals? It's kind of like Washington State has done and in California. And I couldn't let that go. I kind of think it was a little bit like Del Riley back in the day of, well, why can't we mail ballots to everybody? Give me a better argument for it. And so it felt to me as politics was beginning to get more calcified, more and more people going into their respective corners. Well, that's a bad idea because it's coming from your side. Well, no, it's it's a good idea or a bad idea. It shouldn't matter which side it comes from. Okay. But that was getting more and more of that kind of polarization around ideas. Okay. And the education issue, which is the policy issue I cared most about. I still think this is true. I think that the grand deal that Oregon needs is you put a lot more money into education all the way from preschool on up. But in exchange for that, you put in place genuine performance standards. You get much more serious about treating teaching as a profession and what that means with longer conversation. But it's a bit of a grand bargain with people about how you do. You make the school year a lot longer. We have one of the shortest school years in the country, okay, which is, I think, really a, a terrible thing. So it felt to me from what I'd seen at the legislature and during my time as Secretary of State that we needed to break out of this model in which even to win the primary, you had to go into your respective corners. And that was becoming the killing ground of American politics. I mean, if you step too far outside the orthodoxy, you'd get primary. That term wasn't even used until the 21st century. Okay. Primary as a verb. Getting primaried as a verb. And so I was looking for what might, you know, address that. And so I think we devised a pretty thoughtful, elegant ballot measure that didn't say parties have no role. In fact, candidates would have been listed in the party they were registered in. And if they were endorsed by a political party and they wanted the endorsement, okay, they could print that on the ballot. So voters would have that information. But at the end of the day, the top two would advance. And during that campaign, I thought the best criticism of it, and one that I said, oh, you need to think about that, were these kind of weird potential splits. Well, why not top three or top four? And I said, well, maybe we should do that and do some version of ranked choice. (laughs) We never got a chance to, of course, because... It got defeated overwhelmingly. And I think quite honestly, it got defeated because both political parties saw it as a threat. That's your okay. Theory. You know, you can say, gee, if both think it's a threat, it must be a good idea. But by the time it's on the ballot, politics is much more which side are you on? Who's your enemy? The enemy of my friend is my enemy too. 
or is that right? The enemy of my friend. Uh, yeah, the enemy of my friend is my enemy too. That kind of politics was more and more. And, and so it didn't matter. People who were Democratic leaning, Republican leaning would look to people they respected in the respective parties say, oh, this is a real threat. It's a, a nefarious plot. And it lost, I think, two to one at least. And then lost two to one six years later when it had a lot more money behind it. Because we yeah. had to run it with hardly any advertising because the recession hit us right in 2008. So I think a, a top four with ranked choice is a better model now than a, just a simply top two, if we're going to go that route, you know, but quite honestly, I'm not sure you take that step, you know, immediately because, you, you know, you look at, you know, that is something that Oregonians need to be ready for. But I do think it would be an improvement over what we've got. And in the interim, short of that, there's a very simple thing to enfranchise a million people in, hmm. that right now are disenfranchised, non-affiliated voters. And in Colorado is already doing it. Hmm. And anyone running for secretary of state, to me, this is a no-brainer, whether you're on the Republican or the Democratic side, and you ought to be asking people about it. Hmm. You send non-affiliated voters both ballots, the thick envelope primary, like college applications. You know, you don't want the thin envelope, you want the thick one. Okay. Well, if you're a Democrat, you get the Democratic ballot. If you're Republican, you get the Republican ballot. And if you're not affiliated, you send both ballots and you can only return one of them. You can't cross. You can't go back and forth. It's not a true open primary in that sense. But you get a choice. Hmm. Colorado did it beginning, I think, in 2018, and they doubled the turnout of non-affiliated voters in primary elections. That's and, really interesting. And, and it's unknown. I mean, kind of going, come on boys and girls, men and women in the Oregon legislature, if and people running for office, if you really believe that we've done bad by the young people, 50% of voters under 40 are non-affiliated voters, okay? If we're doing them wrong, and we are, well, what's the easiest way to enfranchise them beginning now? The Oregon legislature in the special session could do this. It'd have costs. You'd have to work with the county clerk. You'd have to pay for the election. In fact, we ought to be paying for the elections like that. But right now, we force the local governments. Single biggest mistake I think I made as Secretary of State was not championing the state paying the cost of primary and general elections that we require local governments to run. Hmm. They can pay for the ones they're going to run. But when we require state, local, a state election with federal and state candidates on the ballot, the primary and the general, we ought to pay the bill. And it's not as if, you know, the coffers are bare. But, you know, you make choices, you make priorities. But, you know, the thick ballot primary, as I call it, would immediately enfranchise independence and wouldn't give everybody the full choice that I think they deserve to have ultimately. But it'd go a long way to really addressing what is is really, a you know, an injustice. Well, that's a that's a good stimulating and intriguing thought to leave this conversation with. I've already kept you longer than I promised I would, I but um, I talked too long. I talk no, 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 long. Phil, it was really a pleasure. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, spending some time with me. I really enjoyed it. Ben, thank you for doing what you're doing, and best uh, of luck with everything. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. All right.